I invite you to open your Bible to perhaps the best known and best loved passage in the entire Bible. Not many times when I've preached, I've had that ability to say that about a passage of Scripture. It's simple and sweet. It breathes confidence, strength, serenity. It combines deep piety with exquisite poetry, delightful poetry. I feel like that Old Testament scholar who confessed, it is almost pretentious to comment on this psalm or for me to preach it. It is such a simple statement that it can bear its own witness without a comment. In fact, I tempted to just read it 35 times during my allotted portion today in a few different translations and call it a morning. But that's something that you can do and something that I have done uh, on my own. My task here is to unpack it, to help you understand it, to explain it, and to help you apply it into your very soul today. It's a very personal psalm, as we'll see. I want to make two general observations about this psalm before we look at uh, two major applications, or well, two major uh, lessons, and then we're going to look at five ways in which that second point. So I'll walk through that with you. A general observation first, it's all about the Lord. The Lord, Yahweh, Jehovah, the personal name of Israel's God, the covenant-keeping, faithful Redeemer. This is not merely the God of creation, though it is the same God, but this God of creation has a name, and he's come to his people Israel with a personal name, the I Am, Yahweh. You'll see that the psalm, as we read it in a moment, begins and ends with the name of the Lord. You see it in one, and you see it in verse 6. Sandwiched between that first and last verse are ten or so specific acts the Lord performs for us. Listen to these pronouns. The Lord is my shepherd. Verse 2, he lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He renews my life. He leads me along the right paths for his name's sake. Even when I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger for you. You'll notice the pronoun shifts now, becomes more personal still. You are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. It's all about the Lord, but it's also in a secondary sense all about David all about a very deep personal relationship with this Lord. 
And so I'm going to read it again, and this time put the emphasis on the personal pronouns, the first personal pronoun, first person pronouns. The Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. He lets me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He renews my life. He leads me along the right paths for his namesake. Even when I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger. For you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. You prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Only goodness and faithful love will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. It's intensely personal. Personal yet not self-centered, not self-focused. It's bursting with praise and trust and gratitude. It's a pattern of Scripture that God does speak to us personally, but it never ends with us. It doesn't terminate on us. It always abounds upward toward the Lord. Uh, it's, it's kind of like the, the, the dynamic of Psalm 139. Uh, I have been fearfully and wonderfully made, yes. But who gets the praise for that? We, we praise not the painting, but we praise the painter for the masterpiece work that he's done. And whether it's in our creation from the womb in Psalm 139, or whether it's all the redemptive work he's done for us since, it always is towards him. Ultimate praise goes to him. Well, I'm going to walk through this psalm with you. And uh, the first main point will just be the first line. And then the second main point will cover everything else. And you'll, you'll see how I try to approach that with us today. Two major lessons for us. First, as Christians, let's embrace our deepest identity. We are the Lord's sheep. Our deepest identity. This image of sheep is one of the most common in the Bible to describe who we are. We can think of other identity type words, but this is one of the most common. We see it here. We see it throughout the Old Testament. We are the, sh the sheep of his pastor, Psalm 100 and some of the things we've read and sang today. We see in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul, Peter comes to us in 1 Peter 2, and he reminds us of this, for you were like sheep going astray, but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. And as prophesied throughout the Old Testament, our Lord Jesus Christ becomes that shepherd for us. In John 10, he is the good shepherd who dies for us. In Hebrews 13, he is the great shepherd of the sheep who was raised for us. And in 1 Peter 5, he is the chief shepherd who one day will return for us. And so all this, as, 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 as I show and as we bring at least towards the conclusion, really ultimately is speaking to our, about our Lord Jesus Christ. Now, David, of course, is in a prime position to write this from a very unique perspective. 
Because like his father Jesse and his brothers, he himself was an actual shepherd of sheep, of animal sheep. And so surely some of the imageries he brings in these first four verses are uh, something he understood quite well and experienced in his own physical care of sheep. But we also know that from that vocation, as we read in First and Second Samuel, the Lord made him not just a shepherd of animals, but made him a shepherd over Israel. And one of the things we learn as we would look, for example, in Second Samuel 5 or Psalm 78, we learn that in making David a shepherd of the people, he made David a ruler and king. And so the language of shepherd in the Old Testament is often referring to kings and those in uh, those kind of high positions. In other words, there's a kind of royal, royal theme, a royal identity, a royal motif, this kingly identity. Second Samuel 5 says that God called David to shepherd and to rule. There's a parallel there. We need to see that even as we reflect on this psalm. But we'll go one step further. Then not only did David become a shepherd, a shepherd king, but David recognizes that he has a shepherd king over him. There's someone even above the shepherd king, David. It's the Lord himself, Yahweh. David is conscious of this greater shepherd over Israel. But now let's get more directly into the text here. Not just over Israel in some generic corporate way. In fact, not just over Israel in the old and not just Jesus over the church in the new, but Jesus over you, a member of that church, you, one who belongs to Christ. So let's embrace that chief identity. There's all sorts of ways that we would self-identify. I'm a man, I'm 64, I'm Anglo, I live in Louisville, all sorts of summary descriptions I can bring. But none of those are even uh, closely as important as the fact that my chief identity is I'm a sheep of the Lord God. Right? And isn't that what unites us here today? Different backgrounds, all sorts of differences, much diversity. We pray for more diversity, but we also want to pray for that deep unity that comes as a shared identity, we're sheep. Let's embrace that identity. Let's own that. Secondly, let's enjoy the provisions. And this is where I want to walk through the passage with you, the provisions. There's a kind of summary statement, the second line, the end of verse 1 there. The Lord is my shepherd. I have what I need. I have what I need. Most of us are used to, of course, growing up with the older language of the King James, I shall not want, and properly understood, that's a great translation. Properly understood. Because for many, uh, the idea of I, everything I want is, oh, there's plenty of things I want I don't get. Well, we have to understand what the Scripture is talking about here. And so I think the translation of, I have what I need, or there's nothing I truly lack. I have the, the provisions in order to live a life that's pleasing to God, God in Christ has given them to me. David is telling us that God's provisions for him and his provisions for us truly are sufficient for us. We have an all-sufficient Savior. Our all-sufficient Bible points us 
to an all-sufficient Savior. In the words of Paul, I've learned to be content. You can map that right onto the themes here. Well, let me walk through, I'm going to summarize this in five ways the Lord provides for us. They all expand on the fact that I have what I need. Five provisions. First, your shepherd gives you rest and refreshment. Verse 2 gives us a pair of images. He lets me lie down in green pastures. Sheep, of course, need green pastures. That's their food. They need a place to rest and to find food. And the caring shepherd will have to occasionally find new places to graze for the sheep. He leads me beside quiet waters. Sheep need to drink. The shepherd needs to find a spring or a brook. The waters have to be quiet waters, however. Fast-flowing waters, rivers, and streams are a problem for sheep. They can easily get waterlogged with the fleece. You understand that. They, they're not designed to swim, and they can, they can be drowned and get carried away. And so the wise shepherd on occasion would have to even dig a, a hole near a stream and try to get some of it to come into a quiet waters. That's the care that the shepherd shows uh, to his sheep who need that water but need a safe place to drink. It's a picture here then of, of rest, of refreshment for our soul. Let's, let's think of us. We're not talking for us here about physical water or grass to eat. No, no, no. This is much more akin to what Jesus himself says when he says, come to me, Matthew eleven twenty eight. All you who are weary and burdened, and I will give you rest. I will give you rest. And all that, of course, is a foretaste of the final provision in Revelation 7. For the Lamb who is at the center of the throne will shepherd them. There's our Lord, our shepherd. He will guide them to springs of the waters of life. And God will wipe every, away every tear. He gives you rest and refreshment. That's verse 2. Verse 3, your shepherd gives you spiritual renewal. Verse 3, he renews my life. To the extent this refers to the animal sheep, this is perhaps where the shepherd would bring the strange sheep back or find a sheep that is what we would call cast, a cast sheep, you know, sheep short legs, wider body, they fall on their back, they can't get up sometimes. They need someone to renew them or to restore their bodily posture, those short, stocky sheep. Or maybe it for the shepherd means healing or massaging some of those legs in order to function. For us, for David and for us, it points to spiritual renewal. The restoration of our soul when we sin, when we drift from the Lord. Or when we're simply tired and weary, we need the encouragement of Scripture, the consolation that God gives us through His Word. We don't know when David wrote this. Was it before or after his adultery? But either way, he needed that kind of ongoing repentance and restoration. We don't have to think of dramatic renewals at this point. Daily, you and I need 
reminders from the Lord of his care and of his grace and, and of our need to repent and turn to him afresh very frequently. Uh, this particular verb is found just four psalms earlier in that wonderful Psalm 19 that describes the power of God's word in our lives. The same verb, Psalm 19, verse 7. The instruction of the Lord is perfect, renewing one's life. It's God's word that God uses then to renew us, to strengthen us, to put us back on our feet if we're cast, to forgive us when we've sinned, to encourage us when we need strength to go forward. The Bible is God's book written by God's Spirit in order to restore, to renew our souls. You go on to the rest of verse 3 here. He, your shepherd, thirdly, guides you along right paths, along the paths that are right, the paths of righteousness. For the animal sheep, this likely would refer to finding a safe place for, that, for the sheep to walk as they, as they traverse sometimes rocky, and terrain, you know, rocky terrain, difficult um, landscape. They might have to walk to go to a new pasture land um, and sometimes quite dangerous. For us as God's sheep, it points to His commitment. Notice who is the actor here. He's the one who's committed to sanctify us, to teach us how to live right, to teach us how to follow Him. Again, God's Spirit takes God's Word, back to Psalm 19 for a moment, to guide us into practical godliness. He does that through your private reflection on Scripture. He does it through private Bible study. Uh, but in many ways, He chiefly does it here as we gather week in and week out and allow those who preach God's Word, who've studied it and prepared that Word for food for the sheep, that's how God is going to continue to guide you along right paths. Why does God do this? To make my life easier? Sure. Make my life better? Yeah, God wants that, right? But he's actually committed to something even more greater, even greater than that. It's for his name's sake. In fact, sometimes as he guides us for his name's sake, it's actually a very difficult situation he might allow us to be in. But he does so, so that ultimately he would receive the glory. God is the one then who saves us and keeps us and matures us so we might uh, do what he calls us to do for his name's sake, that people around us would see his working in us, that people around us would see that we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared ahead of time for us to do. He enables us to obey him so that he would be magnified. So people would look at us and say, what makes that man or woman? What makes that boy or girl? What makes that teenager? What makes that person tick? How is it that they're able to handle life that's so hard? How do they go through trials and hardships and all sorts of uh, mistreatment? How does that person do this? It's because there is an active shepherd who's guiding us. Uh, and, and right along the paths of what's right and how to handle it. Ah, so good. Isn't this so good, this psalm? Uh, here's a fourth way, the provision, looking now to verse 4. Your shepherd protects you from ultimate danger. 
protects you from ultimate danger. Even when I go through the darkest valley, I fear no danger, for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. Did you notice the, the shift in pronouns here? It gets very personal. In fact, it's at the very point of the greatest need, the point of danger, that the psalmist gets the most personal. The most dangerous point is the point where it's most personal. That's not a mistake. David gets that. He shifts from what he, a third person, shepherd does, and now he says, what you will do for me. When does this shift in pronouns occur? In the darkest valley. In the darkest valley. I don't know what kind of valleys each of you go through. Lord and I have our set of valleys that we have to walk through. But we're assured here that there is the presence of the Lord. I fear no danger, for you are with me. Now, for animal sheep, dark valleys are dangerous places to go, filled with evil. Remember, we're talking about an ancient world without electricity, no lights, ah, a dark place. Dark valleys bring very real dangers, robbers, coming from the cliffs above or from the heights above, descending, wild beasts, unseen cliffs. The shepherd here has two tools. He has a, a rod, kind of like a club that might hang on his belt that he would use as a weapon or to ward off and to protect. And he has the staff, that crook often called the staff in his hand, he can use that to kind of help count sheep and separate sheep and guide sheep and pull sheep away and to prod them forward and to rescue them when they're falling off as he grabs them with that, that hook on, on the end. What does it mean for us? Well, it does mean protection from ultimate danger. I have to say ultimate danger because the Scripture doesn't guarantee that you will not face physical harm or physical illness or afflictions. Uh, I don't know the individuals. Well, actually, I do know Chris Phillips, and uh, as we prayed today, brother, for uh, his mom. We're, we're aware of that, actually, Lauren. Chris is preaching at Hunsinger, our church today, and I'm here. I, I teased him. I said, this is like the, this is like the B team swapping, pulpits, a pulpit exchange of the B team or the C or D team, however you look at us here. Um, but they're serious things. We we just had you know one of someone in my small groups, um, uh, mom just died, yeah, this past week. But but here's what scripture would tell us: even that is not an ultimate harm, because of the resurrection. There's resurrection to come, and of course we face spiritual threats, as well. We're aware of those. Lies, the world wanting to squeeze us into its mold, the, the devil who prowls. Now, why do we not fear these threats? Why can we say, I fear no danger? Well, he tells us, for you are with me. The answer to fear 
The answer to anxiety and worry throughout the Bible is always the combination of two truths about God. His presence with us and his power for us. Do you see it right there in the text? You are with me. There's his presence. Your rod and your staff, there's his strength, are with us. Count on it everywhere throughout Scripture. Anxieties and fears and, and, and worries that we have. The answer is constant. You're with me, for me, with me in a good way. Want to, you're for me, yes. And you're strong and able to help me. You'll you notice something else here. By the way, this is right in the center of the psalm. If you were to study this in the Hebrew, you'd see that right here, this idea of the Lord being with us is right at the center of the psalm. Uh, but notice in, in verse 1 and 2 there, he's kind of leading in front of us. But here he's actually, in this, the visual here is not that he's in front of us. He's actually next to us. He walks through this with us. He's escorting us, if you will. He doesn't do an end run around the trials. He doesn't say, I can't go through a dark valley. I'm going to find another way because I don't think you're going to make it. No, he's going to walk with you through that dark valley. Isaiah, when you pass through the waters, I will be with you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be scorched. Or Paul in 2 Timothy went on trial. The Lord did what? He stood by my side and gave me strength. Here's the fifth provision. Your shepherd will commune with you in this life and in the life to come. Your shepherd will commune with you in this life and the life to come. Verse 5 shifts the scene. We move from an outdoor pasture land into an indoor lavish feast. The metaphor of the Lord as the caring shepherd doesn't change or doesn't uh, discontinue, but the metaphor shifts to the Lord as a generous banquet host. You prepare a table before me, verse 5, in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. It's in the presence of enemies. Again, it's in the dark valleys reminding us that God's peace doesn't require a tranquil world. It doesn't require situational peace for the Lord to be with us even amidst enemies. Now, we don't know what kind of feast this is. The commentators have all sorts of different views. Some would view this as a, a victory celebration where there's been a, a, a victory over enemies. The captured enemies are present and they are in, captured there. Maybe it's a kind of royal ascension to the throne. Maybe it's kind of a kingly uh, metaphor here. Uh, we know that there's oil. What is the oil? Is it kind of a symbolic thing or is it just oil that a host would use to help refresh a guest? Um, there's a lot we don't know about this. But here's what we do know a few things. It's overflowing. It's bountiful. It's a generous supply that God gives us uh, it's, it's, it's the words of just a few psalms back, Psalm 16, Lord, you are my portion and my cup of blessing. It's a picture of satisfaction. And so whatever the specific ceremony and vision here, the, the psalmist is, is picturing for us something that's victorious, 
something that's celebratory, something that's joyous, something that's peaceful. As, as we look, I look forward to being with you today just to enjoy our Lord's Supper together with you, that the joyous celebration of what God in Christ has done for us. And the eating and drinking here in verse 5 is a symbol there of, of that covenantal loyalty, that commitment, that fellowship together. And then, and then the psalm shifts to a, a kind of different uh, scene now in verse 6, the scene of the, of the, of the tabernacle or, or, or temple. Only goodness and faithful love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord as long as I live. By the way, the house of the Lord is not actually a place where people like live, unless you're you know, a priest. But what, what it did mean was that uh, the, you'll dwell in his presence. You'll be with his presence in this life and then in the life to come. Notice, what the, notice a few things about this wonderful verse. And we sang a little bit about this. Um, the picture here is a pilgrimage. We're heading towards a final destination. And someone who's filled with goodness and love will pursue us, will follow us. The Lord is the lead in the first couple of verses. And then he's with us. And here he's behind us as well. It's this, this beautiful picture. This verb, pursued, this is the language of being pursued by enemies. But David's not talking about being pursued by enemies anymore. Something else is pursuing him. Something else is nipping at his, at his feet, right? The love, the goodness of God, the faithful love, the steadfast covenant love. Some of you know the word Hebrew. The, the hesed, the, 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 the committed love of God for us in Christ. This is an overwhelming kind of care that we have here. I mentioned that as we started today, this has much to do with Christ. One of the ways to think about the Old Testament is in a passage that comes historically later than this, in Ezekiel 34. The false shepherds, the ungodly kings. You know what God does? He says, I will shepherd my sheep in Ezekiel 34. It's a beautiful picture. But then a few verses later, he says something else. After having said, I will shepherd my sheep, he says, I will place over my sheep a shepherd, David, my servant, David. Brothers and sisters, David is dead at that point. He's long gone in Ezekiel 34. No, there's another shepherd that the shepherd is talking about, and it's his son. It's God incarnate, and this God then has come. And he has come to be our shepherd. He has become our all-sufficient shepherd. He is the good shepherd who died for us. He is the great shepherd of the sheep who was raised for us to empower us. He is the chief shepherd of the sheep. Under even those of you who are pastors here, he's over you. That great shepherd, that chief shepherd will return for you and for all of us here. What a great psalm. I'm going to pray. 
and ask God to help us to enjoy this psalm throughout the rest of the day and on into the days to come. It is glorious. Let me pray for us. Our Father, that you in your glorious wisdom would give us such a psalm from such a writer in such a situation that he faced. We thank you for this glorious psalm. There's reasons, of course, it is so popular. But Lord, we pray that we would uh, terminate our mind not on the beauty of the psalm, but the beauty of the shepherd to whom the psalm points. Give us today a growing and ever-growing sight of our Lord Jesus Christ, our shepherd. In his name we pray. Amen.